Mark. Good to hear from you after a while. It has been a while, but but we have a what we have decided is an emergency podcast. Although, if I'm being honest, the only emergency is that I need something desperately that feels like work and that will distract me from the fact that I'm not getting any of my other work done. So this will fit the bill nicely, I think. Uh, I think I think there's I think there's stuff to talk about that's big. So I think we're going to have some matters that you can uh, you you can dismiss and I will resist. That sounds excellent, because the reason the substantive reason, other than my wanting to avoid other work, the substantive reason for our talk was this lawsuit filed against Sri Lanka very early by a fund that I had not uh, heard of before, Hamilton Reserve Bank Limited. Perhaps I shouldn't call it a fund, but it's Hamilton Reserve Bank Limited. I have no idea who they are, and they're suing Sri Lanka. And maybe we should start just by talking about what's interesting about that. What's interesting to you? Me too. So there there are at least uh, three things that stood out for me about this suit, Um, maybe four. But before I get into the details of what stood out for me as surprising and potentially important with respect to the situation in Sri Lanka, is that I'm just shocked that there are so many bonds out there that have old versions of the Paripasu clause. I had thought that pretty much everybody had revised their clauses and had new clauses that disclaimed the rateable payments uh, interpretation. And right now we have both Russia and Sri Lanka that are on the brink of default or in default. And there's potentially Paripasu claims to be made in both cases. Now, we have friends who will say, you know, maybe they're not uh, very good claims. uh, But I, I think the fact that there are claims at all is very surprising. But um, shall I stop there or I can go into the specifics of why I, I was struck by the Sri Lankan lawsuit? Uh, well, let's, let, me, let let's, me mention one thing. Yeah, sure. So the complaint, and I, while I think this is very interesting, uh, a, a really dear friend of mine is the one who sent it to me presumably sending it to me, knowing that it would be catnip for me. Uh, So if you know that friend, let's blame that friend. Uh, But one of the things that was, I mean, there's not a polite way to say this, that Argentina did that got it into trouble in its Paripasu lawsuit that was just beyond idiotic was that they passed a law. They passed a law saying that they would not pay the holdouts, basically. And this was the famous or infamous lock law. 
And while nobody really understands what the Paripasu Clause means, there had been enough people on the sovereign side who had asserted that the meaning of the clause, even if we don't really know what this clause means, is that you can't really have a law or a policy, an official law or policy saying, I won't pay uh, these people and I'll pay those other people. And Sri Lanka seems to have done precisely that. Like they didn't learn from Argentina. They have like an official policy statement saying, we're not going to pay our international bondholders. And yes, we are going to pay our favored, uh, you know, they have these Sri Lankan development bonds that I think were mainly targeted to domestic banks and members of the diaspora, or maybe friends and family of, you know, the ruling family. Who, who knows what shenanigans are going on? But they issued a policy statement saying we're going to pay X and not Y. If at all anything violates this unclear clause, this strikes me as pretty close. So let's step back for a second, um, just to, because I think it's important that you um, mention these development bonds. So the claim, there are a bunch of claims in this lawsuit. One is a simple, hey, our bond is maturing and you're not going to pay it and we've accelerated uh, for a variety of reasons. And so one of the claims is just give us our money. That, and I think it's interesting enough that someone is making that kind of claim this early. But I, I think you're right to, to focus our attention at the beginning on the uh, another claim in the lawsuit, which is for an injunction like the one that was entered against Argentina, albeit years after the restructuring. And the, the primary complaint that the plaintiff has is that the government has announced, you know, we're going to basically pay the this development bond, which is a local law bond, dollar denominated, but local law bond. And I think that policy statement is is broader and, and kind of encompasses local uh, local law debt in general. And from that complaint, the the plaintiff wants an injunction, not just ordering Sri Lanka to pay these plaintiffs rateably with the holders of the development bond, and not even to pay these plaintiffs rateably with holders of of local debt, but to sweep in any debt issued in the future so that um, in the event there was an exchange and some people participated in a restructuring and others didn't, no payments could go out to restructuring participants unless holdouts were uh, receive a similar payment, which basically for these bondholders, the plaintiffs would mean they get paid in full every dollar of their principal would be due when the first coupon payment goes out to restructuring participants. So this is swinging a giant sledgehammer at the the Sri Lankan restructuring, me too. And, and so my first question for you, I guess, is I find it, I, I hear what you're saying about this looks kind of like the lock law. They've announced they're going to have favored categories of debt and disfavored categories of debt. But in every other respect, this seems to me to be just radically different from the Argentine case. Why are you, why are you um, 
drawing the parallel between the two. So you've identified exactly the bit where I think it's interesting. And I think it's really interesting that Sri Lanka would have done something so stupid as to issue a policy statement saying we're going to pay some and not others. And it looks official enough that plaintiffs have a leg to stand on. But on the other hand, I'm also befuddled, but I find this interesting because maybe I don't understand the strategy and maybe you can help me out on that. Although I'm from your tone, maybe you think this is, this is not a strategy that's going to work, but even if it fails here, maybe it tells us something about how this game is going to play out. So here's a bit I don't understand. You have this fund. I mean, they're not, uh, they're not small. They have 25% of a bond issue, which means somebody spent a lot of money collecting bonds to be able to engage in a holdout strategy. Now, the typical holdout strategy, as we've studied, effective holdout strategies over the years is you wait for the rest of the restructuring to happen, people to agree to take a significant haircut, which I'm guessing a lot of creditors are ready to take in the Sri Lankan situation. And then once those creditors are being paid, you quietly have not entered the deal, but then then you assert your claim at a stage where the others, because they have restructured their debt, no longer have a claim to assert. What befuddles me here is now that these guys, this, this fund or this bank, I think it's like a bank in some Caribbean island or something. Yeah. But um, they have, they have a clever idea, but they've shown their hand. And so now everybody, all the foreign creditors are in exactly the same position. And so I don't see how they're going to get an an advantage. Also, I mean, if, if Sri Lanka is clever enough at this stage and goes to court and says, you know, this this is just rubbish, we can't do any restructuring at this stage, unless the court gives us a clear interpretation that whatever paripasu means, it doesn't mean that these guys get to block everything. I think a court will be sympathetic, but um, it's stupidity on both sides. Stupidity on both. So I think that that that's right. Can can we just sort of unpack this a little bit? So I because you said something that I think is is maybe worth worth emphasizing on the on the law if we were just to to kind of be doctrinalists here for a second it's not as clear to me that this is uh, as strong a case as for the peri remedy as you started uh, us out in our conversation by suggesting and and i think something that you just said um, suggests that maybe you agree with me so yes we have this kind of policy statement that suggests an intent to discriminate in favor of creditors but if you think about the litigation against argentina it was only sort of what 10 years after the default that a court 
got around to issuing this injunction long after the economy had recovered. And there were all kinds of signs early on that the New York courts were not going to use this remedy to disrupt or prevent a restructuring. And it was only after years and years of just refusing to pay the holdouts that the the courts got around to, to using this remedy. And then after finally doing that, they've been doing nothing but walking it back ever since. So that now, you know, the the doctrine is that Argentina was this uniquely recalcitrant debtor who had to be brought to heel because it was given every chance over and over for year after year after year by the U.S. courts, and it just wouldn't do the right thing. It's kind of inconceivable to me that a a judge in New York would actually grant this remedy uh, now, because as you point out, the effect would be to say, you can't restructure. Nobody is going to participate in a restructuring if there's a court order that says holdouts get paid in full. And it's interesting to me because you're suggesting maybe that Argent- or that uh, Sri Lanka might even be well served to push the issue, to ask for a ruling early to, in effect, call the bluff here. So, so two things. One, uh, th- this this complaint is a little bit schizophrenic. It, it it actually, I think, either the lawyers have some special strategy or they don't actually understand the Paripasu litigation as it happened. So they assert that this is basically a contract claim, as I understand it, where the Paripasu clause gives you a right to get paid equally. And they they don't seem to realize two things about the Argentine case to the extent they're taking that as precedent. And I know you have written about this, so please correct me. One, they don't realize that in the Argentine case, there was explicit language in that Paripasu clause about payment. Uh, now, you know, maybe you can make an argument that that wasn't important uh, language, but, you know, it said payment and the court arguably gave an interpretation about payment. But the second thing is that as that Paripasu litigation went on, the court seemed to sort of move from talking about contract interpretation to talking about remedy for breach. And uh the injunction was a remedy for bad behavior. So this this question of whether or not this is a contract interpretation case uh, or a grant of remedy case was not clearly decided, but the nature of this lawsuit being brought so early where it would just undermine any ability Sri Lanka has to do the restructuring without any bad behavior on the part of Sri Lanka. Yes, the complaint says, oh, they're corrupt, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I I don't think that's, I mean, there's just not enough citing to some like newspaper articles. Correct. Uh, This is, if I were Sri Lanka, and they have not exactly shown themselves to be extremely clever. In fact, <laughs> the contrary. Um, I, I, I would I would be like, yeah, bring it on. We're going to go to court and we're going to show the court that this is just completely uh, stupid. I'd get amicus briefs from the Department of Justice. I'd get uh, all of those countries who were willing to file before, maybe even the IMF now. And uh, I just, I would 
quash it. This might have been a massive uh, blunder on the part of this fund. Uh, now that said, I mean, you know, our predictions, at least my predictions about what a New York court would do in the Argentine case uh, was the opposite of what actually the courts did. So guilty, guilty know, as charged for me too. <laughs> but so maybe, maybe the, uh, we can then ask a slightly different question, which is what, if the strategy does not depend on the obvious legal merit of these claims, then maybe there's something else going on. And, you know, often people who are holding really short dated paper are um, sort of frustrated with their treatment in a restructuring. Now, maybe the goal here is both to throw some kind of sand in the early restructuring gears and also to sort of posture yourself as someone who will be aggressive and hard to deal with? Is, is this a negotiating ploy, do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the, I looked at the law firm, it's Jenner and Block. They're a very fancy law firm. I mean, these guys Indeed. are getting getting paid a lot. And while, while it's not their, presumably it's not their strategy, uh, like this fund is not poor. They, they've spent a lot of money. I am guessing that they somehow think that, look, we'll file the lawsuit. Um, nobody will notice. Uh, and they maybe they'll just pay us to go away because we've come up with something clever. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't know whether that's going to work. So in a hypothetical universe where you know, the Elliots of the world and the Aureliuses are not in the game. And uh, there's just a bunch of big funds holding Sri Lankan debt, like banks and um, Fidelity and uh, Franklin Templeton. You know, those people are going to, they're, they're going to play. Uh, they might play hardball, but they, they, I think mostly they're going to play fair maybe these guys are saying, we're not going to play fair. You're going to have to pay us early when you have money to just get rid of us. It's, now, nah, I'm not sure that strategy is going to work, but maybe we don't know. We're just academics. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. One of the things I was going to say is in some ways, so you're describing an end game that has them getting paid in some relatively favorable way relatively early. So that's, that's um, I think, a very logical explanation where the lawsuit is just sort of one piece of a negotiating posture. The other way to, to think about it is that these guys are, they think they're playing the holdout game. And I find that really hard to believe because if we, so for the reasons we've talked about, they're not going to get a pari passu injunction that basically prevents the restructuring from going forward. And if you think that they're gonna be postured as traditional holdouts, meaning there will be a restructuring and these guys are gonna have a judgment and, and start chasing the, the country around the world, it's a terrible idea to get your judgment really early, which is <laughs> what they're doing, right? Because then your judgment is just gonna accrue interest at the piddly little Fed funds rate, and it, not as piddly as it used to be, obviously, but 
nobody wants a quick judgment if you think you're going to be holding out for forever. In fact, that's one of the key lessons I take from Argentina. It's that, you know, Elliot got a judgment on a small part of its claim early so that it could be a pain in the ass by trying to seize assets, but it held most of its claims out and didn't get judgments for as long as possible. And the people who made real money are the people who delayed as long as possible before getting a judgment. And, and they, these guys have to be smart enough to know that the last thing they want is a quick and early judgment that they can then spend the next decade trying to collect. So they're, they're, their play here must be for something other than that. And if it's not Perry pursue, then it must be to posture themselves well for the negotiation. That That's doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I don't know why they would be viewed as a much more problematic uh, participant in the negotiations. I don't know how they would translate this into actual sense on the dollar, but it that makes more sense to me, even though I don't fully understand it, than to think that they're really playing the holdout or the pari passu game here. Because if so, they're doing it in a really weird and, and I think illogical way. It, it, it has to be that there's some logic where they think they're going to get paid early and that others are not going to copy this. I mean, otherwise, this is just, I mean, it's its just insane on their part because they, they're just going to end up getting paid less or they're going to get a ruling that just quashes them. Uh, but, I mean, you know, we've been around this game long enough to know that Many of these people are very clever. They understand the negotiation uh, dynamics well. And I can't help but remember uh, some class from law school where they said one strategy is just to, you know, go in there and be completely crazy and be ready to burn down the entire edifice and you get paid to just leave the game. So maybe this is the completely crazy, batshit crazy strategy of this one fund. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it does, I mean, it shows, among the things that were interesting was that the events that have happened, and we haven't talked about those Sri Lankan uh, development bonds, and I, 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 I hope we, we get to talk a little bit about them, but, Sri Lanka waited a really long time to hire advisors who would be able to tell it how to play the game. And I think all, most of these events, like the policy about favoring the US domestic law, US dollar bonds, it, they did before they hired the outside advisors, I think or at least yeah. before they gave a chance for their outside advisors to say, if you do, if at all you do anything, don't do this. And so, um, and then, then the fact that, I mean, it's just boneheaded. They revised, they first, they took a really long time to revise their collective action clauses. Everybody else revised in 2014. These boneheads didn't revise till 2018. And then even after they revised the collective action clauses in 2018, I didn't know till this morning when I was looking at the bonds that they kept the old Paripasu clause. They didn't revise that one. There's zero cost if you're revising one part of the document 
based on the ICMA template, even if you're just cutting and pasting, how come you cut and paste the first page and not the second page? Because what, what are, were they doing? It, it, I, I don't believe on the Sri Lankan side, there was logic. Like this is just, I mean, uh, this is just like, I mean, it just, I'm not, I'm not I, I don't want to use sort of legally charged words. Uh, goofy seems uh, too much of a compliment. So that's interesting because we see something like that uh, with Russia as well. Uh, Although with the Russians, starting in 2013, they did that sneaky thing where they took out all the future looking language. So in some ways, the Russians, yeah, they didn't, they didn't adapt the peri Pasu clause in the way everyone else did. But in other respects, it looks like they were sort of proactive in making the, if you remember, the language looks kind of like a representation, but not a warranty to parry pursue at the date of issue, but, you know, all bets are off in the future. So, uh, you know, the Russians, who knows whether that will work uh, <laughs> for them, but at least they were doing something. It's, as you point out, the Sri Lankans, it's like... They were late to the party on collective action clauses, and they didn't know there was a party uh, on the Perry Pasu clause. So they never made it around to, to that one. Very I, strange. I, I don't know. Like, how did, how do you even, like, how do you screw this up like this badly? Our students wouldn't have screwed this up. And they're like second year students. This is, it's beyond. But can we just briefly talk about? The Sri Lankan development bonds, yeah. because you know, I th I think I think at first cut you'd really be surprised that the country is saying that look these bonds that are governed by domestic law we're going to pay in full and everybody else is going to have a massive haircut. Like what WTF? What's going on there? Like. Why are they being treated so special? So it's kind of, you're right that it's the height of stupidity to just come out and say, as if it is some set in stone government policy, we're going to favor one class of, of, of bondholders over another. On the other hand, these are all, maybe there, there are some foreign law bonds that the government has indicated it, it plans to pay in full. But as far as I, as far as I know, all of the, the favored bonds are local law bonds and the development, uh, the development bonds are explicitly subject to things like Sri Lankan taxation. I mean, if I were holding one of these things and the government says, we're not gonna restructure you. Uh, frankly, I would still be terrified. The government is gonna want to treat gently banks and other institutions that it really can't afford to have fail, but it's perfectly capable of excluding all of this stuff from the restructuring and then doing something nasty to it later that will accomplish the same thing. Isn't that right? It, it, it is capable. So this is why I'm very suspicious. There is, there is some story here about why the government feels the need to make explicit statements about protecting 
these bonds. Either they forced their domestic banks to hold these bonds, or they, they promised members of the diaspora that they would protect them uh, in exchange for getting this financing, uh, or you know these bonds have been issued to friends and family of the the ruling party or ruling family. It's there's there's something fishy as to why you would take the weak the bonds that have relatively weak legal protections, and then make public policy statements about how these particular bonds will not share in the pain of a restructuring. Like if I am the Chinese or the Asian Development Bank or uh, the holders of the international bonds, I'd be like, what? I mean, how is it you have money to pay these people? (laughs) Well, and that is what the complaint uh, complaint, uh, points out quite quite sensibly and in a lot of respects powerfully. It's like, look, you've, you said you've got the money. These are dollar denominated bonds and you say you're gonna pay them in full. It's like, hello, what about us sitting right here with a, a bond that matures in, in um, just a few weeks? So uh, um, I, I agree with you that there has to be something going on and maybe the government doesn't want to, the Rajapaksas in particular don't want to have courts and investors poking around uh, too deep in the details of who uh, who holds these bonds and who's getting favored by these policies. So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, very, nobody in the press seems to have picked up on this litigation. I, I haven't seen any press articles uh, about this. Have you? I haven't, and I haven't heard from anybody either. And it's been two days since the complaint was filed. So, you know, usually that's plenty of time for people in the financial press to... to I've seen a couple references to it, but nothing in one of the the mainstream outlets can we can we um talk a little bit about the russia uh uh, comparison sure so here's i think i i don't remember the exact date when the uh, grace period for russia expires it's like in the next couple of days right sunday or monday yeah for the the may 27th ones so uh, putting aside the fact that the Russia Paripasu clause is drafted in a weird way. Let's focus in on the fact that they have the old version of the Paripasu clause, just like the Sri Lankans. So whatever reason, the Russians and the Sri Lankans decided the rest of the world is fixing their Paripasu clause to solve the problem in Argentina. We won't. And now we have a situation in Russia where for a completely different set of reasons, uh, unlike Sri Lanka, Russia actually has the money to pay, Russia is paying some of its bondholders and not others. Or uh, to be more precise, it is trying to pay all of its bondholders, but it is succeeding in paying some of its bondholders and not others because of the sanctions and restrictions 
put in place by the Western governments. Now, if the Sri Lankan situation of paying some and not others is a violation of the Paripasu clause, is there an argument to be made that the Russian situation is also a violation of the Paripasu clause? So there's certainly an argument to be made. The um, And again, we're leaving aside the fact that the the Paripasu clause and the Russian bonds really only references the ranking of the bonds at, as at their date of issue. But let's let's forget about that. Yeah, and remember, I think you had pointed out that there is contradictory language in that. There yeah. is, there is. This is sort of a, it's a, a an arrow in Russia's quiver, if you will, but it's it's sort of a weak weak one. It's got some. Uh, uh, some cracks in the wood. So so who knows how that would work. So a couple of things. Um, nothing about the clause says anything about intent. So uh, the fact that the, and if we're treating this as a question of what the contract means, the fact that Russia wants to pay everyone doesn't seem to change anything in reference to the, the contract language. But there's two two ways in which I think the scenarios differ. And the first is less important than the second. So one is, while I don't have the Sri Lankan clause in front of me, the Russian clause does lack that reference to payment. That the was, Sri Lankan clause doesn't have that either. Uh, either. Okay. So they're, doesn't have that. they're identical in that respect then. So that let's that's point one, which turns out not to be a point at all. But point two is that, as you were talking about earlier in our conversation, it isn't clear whether this Perry pursue injunction should be thought of as something that flows naturally from the contract or really as simply a question of remedy. And, and the proceduralist in me wants to insist that it's always a question of remedy because an injunction is an equitable remedy and it can never flow directly from the contract because the court always, always has discretion in deciding whether it wants to give equitable remedies. That's what equity is. So there, the fact that Russia wants to pay everyone and is just forbidden from doing so by the sanctions regime, whereas Sri Lanka, for good reasons or bad, is deliberately discriminating between creditor groups. That strikes me as a huge difference. And it makes the Russian case much less amenable to this kind of pari pursue argument. It's a much harder argument, I think, for creditors to make. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I wouldn't have even thought of it, except the, the Sri Lankan, this like stupidity on the, the Sri Lankan's uh, litigation side on both sides it is opening the can of worms that could, I mean, I wouldn't have asked the question if we hadn't seen that happening there. Now, if we're asking the question, others are asking the same question too, because I think that I think that Putin has made statements or will make statements about, you know, we will pay the good creditors and we won't pay the bad creditors or I mean, I mean, there there's gonna be political statements that are are made. Governments and there have been a few, I think. Nothing formalized as policy, but uh, if memory strikes me correctly, there have been a few of those already. Yeah, and so the, uh, creditors who want to uh, 
you know, just interfere, we'll be able to at least try to do that. Now, in the Russian case, you know, there's no jurisdiction clause. There's who the hell knows where you can bring the litigation. But it's plausible that they should be they would be able to bring a New York case on the dollar bonds or on the euro bonds in England. But there, the other question, and maybe now to pivot back to Sri Lanka uh, for just this is my last question, I promise, is would the IMF allow Sri Lanka to just say, we're going to favor one set of creditors, these like these specially favored creditors who we issued dollar bonds to, even though it was sort of obvious that issuing dollar bonds would have cut against their definition of external indebtedness and the other bonds. I mean, if you'd even thought for five minutes, you would have realized like this, this is just idiotic. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me hard to imagine that things are going to persist this way where holders of these bonds are going to be formally excluded if for the reasons you mentioned and because you know frankly the longer sri lanka goes down this road and the more it becomes clear who holds these bonds you know i, I wouldn't rate the the threat of a peri pursue injunction as zero there there's some threat and and i think um you know the the Sri Lanka's lawyers will almost certainly um, uh, tell it to at least walk back the kind of formal preference that they've been that they've been um, suggesting they're gonna they're gonna enact. So, um, but we'll see we'll see, right? Uh, I think one of the interesting things about the lawsuit is that it's early enough that Sri Lanka has plenty of time to react to it, including in ways that you know, make the Paripasu argument weaker. Maybe it's not a formal policy anymore, but everybody knows that the government will have some ways to put money in the pockets of, of favored creditors. Might might not be might not be this but this way, but the government's gonna gonna have the ability to favor some people when it wants. But we'll see. That's basically what I have me to. Um, nothing earth shattering, but I do think it's really unusual that we see a lawsuit that's this aggressive filed this early, uh, this early in a case. And so I'm kind of excited. Yeah. And these are, I mean, again, I have like, you have a really good law firm. They know how to do litigation. You have a, a fund that has substantial holdings and you have very stupid behavior on the part of the sovereign before it hired it's outside advisors. It's always fun to see how the game plays out, especially when it goes in a direction that we didn't expect. And then you have the big game that's going on with Russia on the side. Uh, I, I, I think this is this is the beginning of uh, what is going to be a much more complex a set of uh, debt restructurings than we might have imagined at the outset. I mean, we don't even have to get to our beloved Sri Lankan airline bond yet. And I, I hear that there, there is lots of drama going on with uh, that as well, with the creditors who hold that bond. 
not wanting to join with the committee uh, being set up for the other bonds. So th this this was well worth talking about. So I'm glad glad you and Liana indulged me in having our emergency podcast.